episode 7 of the Tar Sands Diplomat, podcast episode by episode by the author, Keith Halliday. With Julian murdered, McGregor and the Canadian mission are headed into darker and less conventionally Canadian territory. If you're enjoying the journey, please tell a friend, or as much of the internet as you can. And now, fresh from having cracked the top 16,000 in Amazon's thrillers and suspense category, here's Keith with episode 7. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 8 Bureaucratic life goes on. I returned to the mission. I poked my head into the boardroom. Everyone was still inside, apparently debating which budget would pay for the grief counselors and whether personnel had to approve the email announcing Julian's death. Except for Lucille and Kennedy. Lucille was at the ambassador's secretary's desk, and Kennedy was standing beside her, staring out the window. I suppose someone still has to tell the commission that Can Do Canada is coming, I said. Kennedy glanced into the boardroom. I guess it's you and me. Lucille leapt into action. She quickly organized a meeting later that afternoon with Peter van de Vleert on their Canada desk, plus the various officials from the Trade Directorate General. Lucille was so efficient, in fact, that for a second I suspected she was looking forward to seeing us come back from the meeting bruised and beaten. The Prime Minister, of course, announced the visit without letting the mission check quietly in advance whether the Europeans would play along. I could picture Dorf acting like a big shooter, telling everyone in Ottawa that he would have his Brussels people arrange it. Kennedy was looking calmly out the taxi window as we zipped along Avenue de Lisère, past the spot where the Belgian riot police vans park for smoke breaks on days when no one is protesting anything. If they straight-arm us and say no to the visit, whose fault do you think it will be? I asked. Kennedy thought about this for a second. Probably yours. She was right. I thought about Sir William Friddle, the European Commissioner for Trade. What if the dates the Prime Minister's office announced turned out to coincide with his 25th wedding anniversary? or his keynote speech at some Davos or Bilderberg forum we didn't even know about. I tried to calm myself. Never panic in advance, I repeated to myself. I looked over at Kennedy. She was looking serenely out the window, apparently unworried. She was sitting with her hands in the pockets of her suit jacket, which looked expensive. I remembered that when she was posted to Moscow, she got a tailored Savile Row suit. She wanted a suit that would be worth more than the annual salary of the Russian diplomat she'd be dealing with. A magazine was protruding prominently from her expensive-looking attaché case. With Kennedy, magazines protrude prominently for a reason. I decided to indulge her. What are you reading? I asked conversationally. Oh, this? It's a new magazine called New Think. It's from London. She handed it over. It seemed to be a public affairs, come design, come fashion magazine. I recalled seeing some young super beings reading it in business class as I trooped past them into the sardine compartment on my flight to Brussels. Everyone in it seemed to be young, beautiful, and excessively successful. The editor's a friend, she added nonchalantly. How do you know the editor? In spite of myself, I was interested. Through my friend Antigone, I spent Christmas with her in New York. Antigone turned out to be one of those investment bankers that annoyed Julian so much. You gave up drinking cheap lager with the admin officer at the ambassador's Christmas staff party for that? I asked in mock incredulity. She laughed. A very fun crowd, very alive, very engaged. I wasn't sure what she meant, but I noted these were words seldom used about the Foreign Service. I watched Kennedy's skirt ride up as the taxi bounced over the Brussels cobblestones. Her legs rivaled our Icelandic Canadian interns. I noticed the edge of what looked like a nasty bruise. But then we hit a particularly big pothole. Kennedy pushed her skirt back down before the taxi ride became X-rated. Two of her fingers had bandages, too. I guessed a Taekwondo opponent had landed a blow or two. But it's not polite to ask female colleagues about their upper thighs. How are Wall Street's bankers? Still making millions, I hope, I said. 
The money isn't the thing, actually, replied Kennedy. It's the mental vibrancy. Everyone's thinking, acting, doing new things. They're all my age, but they've written books, done big deals, or started consulting firms or charities in Africa. She seemed positively enthusiastic about this other world she was describing. I could tell she was comparing it to her chosen career. I decided to do a little mentoring. Kennedy, you're a highly successful young foreign service officer. Don't get distracted by shiny baubles. Most of these people think of foreign service officers as a subspecies of bureaucrat, if they think of them at all, she said with a grimace. I seem to have deeply depressed her somehow. What are you doing with Beto from Privy Council Office, I asked, trying to change the subject to a sunnier one. I was also curious. He's pretty high-powered. Oh, just some meetings, she replied evasively. Is it need to know? I asked with a slight raising of the eyebrow. Don't be ridiculous. It's just a visit by the Prime Minister's wife. They asked me to keep it quiet. We have to do a lunch program and then a speech to a woman's institute. It was plausible. We spent more money on the spousal program at the last G8 meeting than we did on aid to Tajikistan. But my instincts told me she was lying. The contrived manly eye-to-eye contact, followed by the bored glance out the window, gave it away. I decided to probe discreetly. I don't mind us squiring the old Eva Brown around. It's one of the perks of our Fuhrer's job. But all this pretending that she has important policy insights that have to be shared with the world in speeches. It's ridiculous, don't you think? Cynicism is our profession's trap, McGregor. Remember the third part of our mission statement, to project Canadian values abroad. If we can use Madame's prestige to attract important international opinion makers and influencers to listen to the Canadian message, then we should do it. I watched her carefully. It was strange how her jargon was somehow capitalized when she spoke. I could see how it would work well at meetings in Ottawa. And she was able to say it with a straight face. She really was destined for the top. Our discussion turned to our imminent meeting. Do you know this fellow Van de Vleert we're about to meet? She asked. I've met him before, arrogant and inflexible. Definitely no friend of Canada. She spoke with absolute certainty. I knew Van de Vleert quite well from previous postings, but perhaps Kennedy didn't need to know just how well. He was an acquaintance on my first posting in Africa, I said. We shared a helicopter when the Foreign Legion evacuated us. He was with the Belgian embassy at the time. Tough, but not unreasonable. Kennedy ignored my waffly opinion. These people from tiny countries get out of hand when they get a job with the EU. Instead of being from some third-rate foreign ministry, they start acting like they're throwing the weight of 500 million people around. I resisted the temptation to point out that there was nothing new about this. Count Nesselrode, after all, was one of Russia's most successful foreign ministers, but was a Baltic German from what we call Latvia today. We entered the building and picked up our passes, after the usual Euro rituals involving French secretaries, Greek security guards, and unpronounceable Flemish surnames. Van de Vleert's cheerful assistant picked us up and led us away. How do you like our new building? She asked conversationally. Nice, I replied. Did they ever find out if the asbestos in your old building was Canadian? Kennedy looked at me sharply, but Van de Vleert's assistant didn't notice. No, but it's going to take two years to renovate it. The building was typical of newer commission offices. We moved briskly through a maze of modular office walls and bizarrely tubular plastic office furniture. It was as if they'd wanted to build the building out of Lego, but Charles de Gaulle had tricked them into using some little-known French equivalent. In order to deal with the sensitivities of more than a dozen official languages, all the words on useful signs had been replaced by alien-looking symbols. Things have changed since you were here before. The U.S. and Canada section is now called EEASV.A.1, said Van de Vleert's assistant. Much catchier than the old DG1A stroke G stroke 3G, I said. It's always wise to be on good terms with executive assistants at other foreign ministries. Are the trade people joining us too, I asked. Yes, the colleagues from DG Trade E1 are just arriving downstairs. 
We waited in Van de Vleer's office as his assistant brought us coffee. Kennedy pulled out a copy of Famous Canadian Triumphs from her briefcase and began reading. She drummed her bandaged fingers impatiently on the cover. She seemed to notice my glance and stuffed her hand back into her pocket. I tried to remember if she usually had nicely manicured nails, but decided not to ask. You don't want to play the male chauvinist these days, assuming female colleagues are sitting around doing their nails instead of playing women's rugby or shooting grizzly bears. Instead, I pointed at the book. The department bought 10,000 copies and sent each mission several boxes to share with pro-Canadian agents of influence. You're not going to give him one of those books, are you? I joked. As dedicated as Van de Vleert undoubtedly is to the advancement of Euro-Canadian relations, I don't think he cares that New Brunswick has the longest covered bridge on the planet, or that the world owes powdered instant potatoes to Canada. Of course not, she said, but we have 10 cases and I want to see what's in it before we start giving them to people. I hope it mentions that the South Africans used our Indian Act as the template for their apartheid laws, and that it was Canadian uranium that vaporized Nagasaki. We sipped our coffee in silence. I recognized the signs. I defended a colleague. I started as Van de Vleert appeared suddenly out of a hidden door beside me. It wasn't actually hidden. It was simply so modernistic I thought it was a wall panel. Through a glass wall in the conference room behind him, I could see stylishly dressed blonde people arguing in front of a map of the North Atlantic. Hello, McGregor, said Van de Vleert with a smile, shaking my hand and then Kennedy's. Viking attack from Iceland, I asked, gesturing at the secret door. Bloody cod. Fortunately, I'm an E1 and the Iceland people are an E2, said Van de Vleert. He'd learned his cursing from the English somewhere. I'm sure everyone would be better off if we just paid all the fishermen to sit down in the bar. But don't you have Icelandic entanglements of your own? Yes, I replied. Duncan Kenty got our ministers to sign a letter that mistakenly recognized Norwegian sovereignty over the disputed Svalbard box fishing zone. We usually don't hear much from the Icelanders, since the Icelandic embassy to Canada is located near DuPont Circle in Washington. But their ambassador was so enraged by Kenty that he actually visited Ottawa and tore a strip off someone. Then some junior officer circulated a reporting telex with the actual facts of what happened in it. Van de Vleert and I chortled into our coffee. Kennedy, however, was not amused. They're called emails now, McGregor, not telexes, she said with a prim frown. Of course. Duncan is a distinguished official, said Van de Vleert politely. Then he changed the subject. Mademoiselle Percival, do you know where I first met McGregor? In Africa. We were waiting to be evacuated by the Foreign Legion and all McGregor could do was whine about stomach cramps. We gave him some ginger ale and told him to shut up. Then my appendix burst, I pointed out. I think the Foreign Legion doctor took it out with a corkscrew. The scar is enormous. Van de Vleert started laughing again, this time uncontrollably. Yes, yes, at least he did it in the hospital tent. McGregor's just lucky it wasn't in Emperor Bocasa's kitchen. We both laughed heartily. Van de Vleert's ambassador on that posting never tired of telling people about how he had been lucky enough to attend the trial of the self-styled Emperor of Central Africa after the madman had finally been overthrown. Cannibalism was one of the charges, and it was alleged that the Emperor had literally eaten something that disagreed with him. Our laughing petered out self-consciously. It was obscure, I admit. Kennedy gave us her prim frown again. Van de Vleert's colleagues from the Trade Directorate General joined us, and we exchanged cards. <clears throat> That's our five minutes of civilities said Van de Vleert gravely, as he sat up stiffly in his chair. Let's get to business. We received your message proposing a ministerial trade mission, and I've consulted with the trade colleagues. He began to speak formally, making a carefully structured statement without notes. From the expressionless faces of the trade colleagues, I knew Van de Vleert had carefully coordinated a united front with them before our meeting. He's a product of one of the French elite schools, and I could see the semicolons and therefore signs hanging in the air as he spoke. Our concern is fourfold. A, that your government announced the mission without consulting us. 
B, that the tone of your announcement is not conducive to mutual cooperation, but seems aggressive and more concerned with domestic public relations than with solving mutual problems. C, that the agenda you announced includes none of the protectionist measures that worry us on your end. And D, that the timing is very tight and may conflict with a number of other visits and events we've been planning for some time. Therefore, we wish to inquire if the Canadian authorities might be interested in a postponement, during which time we could structure a mutually agreed agenda and solve any scheduling difficulties. Kennedy and I stared at him. Only 30 seconds had passed. Kennedy's pen was poised over her notebook, as if waiting for him to finish. But he was finished. He had pithily stated his position. There were no loose ends and no language to clarify, even though English was his third or maybe fourth language. It was like watching a Flemish master dash off a technically perfect pen and ink sketch. We were more used to meetings as expressionistic collages, during which people spewed their streams of consciousness onto the canvas. Kennedy was waiting for the rambling restatements, elaborations, and additional points. Instead, Van de Vliert and his staff sat still, waiting for a response. I noticed that his colleagues from trade had the discipline to refrain from restating any of his points just to make their presence felt. To make matters worse, Van de Vliert's carefully articulated objections were just common sense. I sighed inwardly. How would we convince him to drop them? I was trying desperately to think of something to say when Kennedy opened her mouth. God, I thought, please not a lunch invitation. It would be useless to take Van de Vliert out to lunch and keep asking him to help us again and again, like children asking mum for chocolate cereal in a grocery store. Only slightly less calamitously, she began reading off the talking points that Dunscap had sent from headquarters. Hearing someone read from Dunscap's talking points was almost supernatural, like channeling an addled spirit into the room via transatlantic Ouija board. I listened to the swirling mists of non-sequiturs and inane meeting speak. It's how even normally sensible officers find themselves saying things like lead Canadian role, punching above our weight, and strategic action plan coordinated by a committee of 21 senior officials. Monsieur Van de Vliert, began Kennedy, the Canada-Europe trade relationship is a key Canadian priority, but trade has to be a two-way street. We need to work cooperatively to address irritants like asbestos, canola, and energy. We have therefore announced the Can-Do Canada trade mission. I've seen your talking points, interrupted Van de Vliert. I believe your secretary attached them by mistake when she emailed my assistant about this meeting. He passed a copy back across the desk. As Kennedy talked, I quickly scanned it to see if Dunscap had written anything likely to offend the Europeans on it. Things were going badly wrong already, and it wasn't clear how we were going to extricate ourselves. Van de Vliert continued relentlessly. Anyway, Madame Percival, the point you make about trade being a two-way street in no way undermines any of my points. Indeed, one might say that it reinforces my point C. Point C? said Kennedy. She couldn't remember the order of Van de Vliert's points. One of the perils of dealing with dangerously professional European officials is that they somehow train themselves to hold the transcripts of everyone's statements in their heads. It's as if they're posted on the wall. They refer back to previous clauses and subparagraphs to support their arguments and pick up any loose language you use for counterattack later. They're very difficult to deal with unless A, you've carefully thought out your position in advance, or B, are protecting them from the Red Army, like the Americans used to do. Kennedy tried an attack from a different direction. Now, you mentioned that you thought the agenda was one-sided. Canada has been very reasonable on a number of disputes recently, but the issues on our agenda have been outstanding for many years. We need to take some action. Once again, Madame Percival, said Van de Vliert, you have not contradicted any of my points. I agree that we need to take action, but not the mission you propose, for the reasons I enumerated earlier. Kennedy stuck to her guns. 
Canada has proactively implemented the agreement on geographic appellations, she reminded Van de Vliert. He almost snorted in reply. Canada can hardly take credit for finally, after years of pressure, agreeing to stop the barbaric practice of injecting cheap wine with industrial carbon dioxide and calling it champagne. If you want to talk about a trade agenda, let's add cheese, the auto pact, fish products, government procurement, and drug patents, just to name a few. A less sympathetic observer than I might accuse Canada of hypocrisy in publicizing such a self-serving agenda. Kennedy bristled at this attack on Canadian good faith. If Van de Vliert went on in this frank, forthright manner, I feared things would get ugly. Only one solution came to mind. I would have to tell the truth. Monsieur Van de Vliert, I interjected, your points A through D are well considered, and we will ensure they are faithfully transmitted to our capital. However, logic and common sense are irrelevant to us. This initiative is a personal priority of the Prime Minister. Emperor Bokassa was probably not dissuaded from eating the Chadian ambassador by a carefully argued memorandum from the Foreign Ministry. This visit is going ahead. The only question is whether you will help us arrange it so that it can both be modestly useful and entirely forgettable, or if you want to provoke our notoriously moody head of government into holding more xenophobic press conferences and making frenzied crank calls to European leaders, in which case it will be ugly for all of us. I could feel Kennedy's temperature rising beside me. She was furiously scribbling my comments into her book, presumably to denounce me later to the Puffs and Traders' Desk and Security Division. Van de Vliert eyed me expressionlessly. I was afraid you were going to say that. He paused and flipped through a calendar. I've checked the dates, and our commissioner can give your minister 15 minutes. We can fit you in between the Malta-Europe Chamber of Commerce luncheon and the Norwegian trade minister. We'll also organize some large negotiating sessions with lots of translators and working groups, as well as a press conference. As a favor, I'll even commission a poster. We'll use the same graphics as on the Europe-Iceland poster this week. Let me know which hotel your delegation will be staying in, and the Canadian reporters too, and we'll have the poster put up at the bus stops nearby with a few flags. It'll look like a big deal. Van de Vliert had once again blurted out a complete solution, but Kennedy was fidgeting in irritation. Fifteen minutes? Trade Minister of Norway? she exclaimed. Yes, agreed Van de Vliert, apparently misunderstanding Kennedy. Canada and Norway are both valued economic partners of the European Union. He picked up his phone and confirmed the slot with the commissioner's secretary. Kennedy pressed her lips together in frustration. Van de Vliert hung up and turned back to us. It's confirmed. Fifteen minutes, repeated Kennedy. We'll take it, I said, almost shouting. I stood up and began shaking hands and opening Lego doors before Van de Vliert changed his mind. That wraps up episode 7. Thanks for listening to The Tarzan's Diplomat. I hope you enjoyed it. Check your iTunes feed next week for episode 8. If you're enjoying the story, please tell a friend or leave a review on Amazon.ca. And if you have any comments, please send an email to me at khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com.